Hello, everyone. I'm here today with Nora Phillips. Nora is a humanitarian advocate who exclusively practices federal immigration law. While she has innumerable legal accomplishments, she has also faced true adversity in the course of her work. I don't want to give away too much because you all have got to hear this story from her to believe it. She's here to tell us about her nonprofit, U-Visas, and most importantly, her experiences on the border. From Loyola University Chicago School of Law, this is The Podvocate. We're law students exploring the vanguard of the legal world with experts from our backyard and beyond. Subscribe to The Podvocate wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome, Nora. I can't thank you enough for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited. Let's just start with the brief introduction of your background. You've got so many interesting things to say. It'd be awesome to learn how you got your start. I think I've worked in like, with the exception of my brief foray into private practice, which didn't work out because I charged clients like $10 a month with no interest. Um, I haven't really worked a corporate job since I was 16. So I have a lot of... um, most of my experience prior to law school was working with um, children and low-income families. I was an elementary school teacher, worked at the rec department. I worked with terminally ill adults. Um, I just kind of sort of bounced around. I graduated from college like a month after I turned 20. So I kind of didn't really, <laughs> it took a while to figure out what I wanted to do. I knew I wanted to do something social justice related, awesome. but I was vacillating between like MSW, maybe a PhD. Mm-hmm. And then September 11th happened. And I the I was living in New York, not during September 11th, but I moved there about a year after. And the Islamophobic backlash mm-hmm to September 11th and seeing just lines of um, Muslim men and boys lining up to register in the NSEERS program just like made me be like, I'm going to, I think I'm going to do civil rights law. Yeah, that and like, that was like 99% and the 1% was Aaron Brockovich, <laughs> so, <laughs> which I know people listening to this are really young, but you need to watch the movie. For me, it was Legally Blonde. Oh, <laughs> oh bend and snap works every time. Um, so yeah, so then I went to law school. I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I, I said that I wanted to do international human rights law until mm-hmm. I found out that that meant largely like sitting in, um, air conditioned conference rooms in like the Hague. Yeah. So <laughs> then I discovered like, oh, immigration law, it's international human rights law right in your backyard. Exactly. Um, and I'm trilingual. So I'm fluent in English and Spanish and French. French was actually what I got my bachelor's degree in. Mm-hmm. Um, And so I started thinking about immigration, and then I ended up going to DePaul, um, which is sort of like churns out more immigration attorneys than any school I've ever seen. Oh, I didn't realize that. Oh, yeah. It's really ridiculous. It's pretty awesome. awesome. So, and I did um, an immigration clinic there for a year, Uh, had a number of real cases, um, just like all kinds of... I don't know. It just it it threw me into a system that was terrifying. And then I thought, if it's this terrifying for me, my God, like for our clients, like this is this is what I got to do. Yeah. So um, and then I worked at LAF like 
I, I would literally I, I wasn't like the I wasn't the law review type. I was more like the finish class and then run three blocks down from DePaul to LAF and work kind of lady. So I had like a caseload of 70 when I was a 2L like oh running the U visa program. Oh it was great. Yeah. But um, it was funny because I remember when I when I did pass the bar, I was like running through the hallways of LAF, like skipping. And everyone's like, what happened? I'm like, I passed the bar. They're like, you weren't already a lawyer. <laughs> I'm like, I never said I was. <laughs> like, so, so very like practicing, you know, from a pretty early um, point. But yeah, and then I moved to Los Angeles and worked at a nonprofit there for four years called Garrison. Um, brief foray into private practice where it was me and another public interest attorney working in a tiny little shack in an alley with like a gravel alley, um, which was awesome. And then I, I've been doing the Al Otro Lado thing, which is my nonprofit, since 2011. Okay. Um, we didn't get our 501c3 until 2014, but we um, I've always had, since 2011 up until like 2016, I had two full-time jobs. Mm-hmm. So it was al otro lado, which didn't pay on top of the job that I needed to pay my loans, which are still, uh, which have, the principal has not gone down at all. And oh, I graduated great. in 2007. So yay. That's great to Thanks, know. banks. Yeah. And so I wasn't getting paid anything. I think like three years ago, I made my first like actual income from al otro lado and I made $3,700 that year as the legal director. Wow. So, and I, my, my husband's a nurse, so we're not like, ro- we have roommates and stuff. We're not like rolling in it. I've got my My bumper is taped to my car. Um, But uh, I finally am able to do this as my sole full-time job, which is like 20 jobs in one because of all the programs we do Um, and how incredibly difficult the government has made our work um, in a couple of different ways. So I um, am now and have been um, working full-time at at Al Otro Lado as the legal director, and I manage a number of different programs at the organization. So you said a lot of things there. I just want to break them down a little bit. So first you mentioned Al Otro Lado, Mm -hmm. uh, if you want to translate that. Of course. So Al Otro Lado literally means on the other side. And I kept hearing it. So I'm from Wisconsin, if that's not obvious. So I moved to L.A. and I go um, down to Tijuana and I'm like, uh, oh, my God, the, we need to start a program here. This is crazy. And I kept hearing all these people saying, oh, like so-and-so está al otro lado. Mm-hmm. Somebody is al otro lado. And I was like, al otro lado de qué? Like on the other side of what? And they're like, the border. And I'm like, oh, right. So then I was like, that is kind of a perfect name for a cross-border, you know. Yeah, I have goosebumps. It is amazing. Yeah, it's pretty, I'm like, I just, this is a great baby. It's so, I mean, even just the name is impactful. So I can't Mm. wait to hear about what you guys do. Buckle up. (laughs) (laughs) Next, you mentioned 503. 1-3-C? 501c3. So that's the okay. official IRS designation for a nonprofit organization. Okay. So that and, and our 501c3 was actually done by the USC um, Small Business Clinic through mm-hmm. the law school. So we get we've had a lot of help from law schools and putting a lot of this together because we had no money at yeah, all. Absolutely. So. That's amazing. I mean, law schools exist. I think that everyone should take advantage. Yeah, for sure. And definitely for anybody listening who's considering like starting their own nonprofit, it's a total pain in the neck, but it's like absolutely worth it. And I don't know, I'm never going to have a boss and I'm very excited about that. Yeah. That, yeah. 
autonomy is very important yeah. to me as well. Yeah. So yeah. I can see where that is so appealing. Okay, so the other side, mm-hmm. al otro lado. You started this, it's your baby. It's my baby. Well, it's my, I mean, w- there were two parents to the, for the baby. Oh, so the co-mother was Esmeralda Flores, who okay. is an attorney licensed in Mexico, who was um, stationed at Casa del Migrante, which is the largest migrant ho- mi- migrant shelter in, um, in Tijuana. And she was essentially like receiving t- people who'd recently been deported within some within the last like 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. And she's um, because she's licensed in Mexico, she can't practice U.S. immigration law. And so um, all of and she was just gathering data about um, abuse in custody, loss of belongings, things like that. And so then inevitably, at the end of the interview, the deported person would be like, so you're a lawyer. Can you help me with my case? And she's like, I'm a lawyer. But I don't practice. I don't. I can't practice in the U.S. Mm-hmm. I don't know U.S. immigration law. So then she kind of she was Esme was up in L.A. talking to people at different nonprofits, and we just click like some sort of like cross border twin, That's like amazing. soul sister situation. And so um, for years it was just her. Like on you know Sunday night, she'd hit me up on Google Hangouts with some traumatized nineteen year old who lived in the U.S. since he was three. Does, yes. And like had no idea, you know, so it was kind of like a, it was like lawyering, momming, like you let these kids, there's so many post deportation suicides. Like it's a, it's, it's a, it's a trauma. It's like getting pushed off of a building. Like, and we're just trying to be like a stack of mattresses at the bottom because it's going to be devastating, but we're just trying to prevent people from relapsing, committing suicide, um, things like that. So. You know, that's something that literally no one talks about. I I believe that I consume more information and news about these topics than the average layperson, and I have yet to hear a substantive amount about post-deportation suicide, drug addiction, relapsing, um, probably some gang involvement, I mean, do you want to speak on that? Sure. I mean, I think that the obvious reason that you don't hear about it is that it it largely impacts low-income men of color. Mm-hmm. So this is a population. So I to back up a little bit, I administer a couple of programs in the United States, but I also run the deportee program in Tijuana, which is for people who have been deported with priority given to people who've been deported right out of prison. Mm-hmm. Because if you can imagine, like, a friend of mine grew up in the U.S. since he was two, took a terrible plea for a crime where nobody was injured, 14 years in prison, six in solitary. And then I actually physically saw him being deported after I we I went to court. The minute he was transferred out of state cust- criminal custody, I went to his hearing I and had did what I've never done before in my life, which was to beg the judge to order him removed mm-hmm. um, after negotiating with the trial attorney. And I was like, it's eight in the morning. Mexico's two miles from here. I don't want him to spend another night in a cage. Mm-hmm. The judge is like, are you sure? Are you sure? Are you sure? I'm like, I really respect your love of due process. And I wish most judges were like this. But yes, this is what he wants. And this is what we're going to do. So I had to like hustle. I had to like hug an ICE officer, whatever it takes. Uh, but we were able to get him on a bus that day. He was the only person on the bus. And I remember when he was walking out, it was just this like, painful like blue sky and then his head which was bald walking as the sole person he was the only person that they brought on that bus probably because I was like I'm not leaving and And just seeing him physically deported from one side to the other 
and we were there to catch him. I was there with his mother. It's like, what are you going to do with your life? Like, how are you going to physically, mentally function after? Like, he didn't have one single day in his 20s where he, like, you know, saw the moon not through bars. So it's just this trauma that is... that has like a million different layers especially if your family is undocumented in the U.S. because then they're never going to see you again that was he you know his case other other cases that I've had involving deported family members it's like that's like there's a special place in my heart for every client population we have refugees non-citizens with severe medical issues homeless folks we have projects for a variety of different client populations but uh, people who've been deported from prison are just like that is that's where my heart lies. That that was the the impetus for the entire organization yeah. was to bring U.S. legal services basically to create an immigration legal services program in like a free legal like to make LAF pick it up, drop it off in TJ. Yeah, that I mean it's that's just about the most vulnerable population yeah. you can, which find. is why it's the hardest to fundraise for. Absolutely. So you also mentioned U visas. Can you give us a quick overview of what that is and why it's significant, especially today? Yes. Okay, get ready to take notes. So the U visa was created in 2000 by the Victims of Trafficking and Violence Protection Act, but we didn't have any regulations for it until September of 2007. So we had the IKEA box with no instructions for seven years. And I was working at LAF um, in 2005, 2006, when we um, we were still filing these interim relief applications. We finally got the regulations in 07, and then I had an EJW fellowship for two years to work on U visa issues. So I dove headfirst into it. I was just like baby lawyer doing all this U visa stuff. So the U visa is um, a particular immigration remedy for folks who have been victims of certain crimes, mostly either fall into the category of violent crimes or crimes that are um, an affront to the justice system. So obstruction, witness tampering, things like that. The whole point of the U visa was actually created by law enforcement as a tool to encourage undocumented crime victims to come forward. So as like a public safety initiative. Um, So... The crimes that I work with, mo- I've probably filed around 1,300 of these. Wow. I, I've been practicing for a very long time, and I've done a lot of high-volume work, mm-hmm. so it's probably somewhere around there. I don't I don't really know. But, yeah, I've been doing use since, like, for probably the past f- 14, 15 years. And so um, it's just this really incredible remedy that, ha- that has allowed a lot of victims of horrible crimes to have some semblance of stability in their lives, a path to residency. Um, my clients have had gone through, I mean, the majority of my cases are domestic violence and sexual assault, a lot of sexual abuse of children, uh, parents of young homicide victims, um, kidnappings, felonious assaults, which is sort of this general category of people who've been like stabbed, shot. I have a lot of clients that are paraplegic. Um, so it's just it's just a, a lot of trauma and sadness all the time, and then those applications used to take from adjudicate from filing to adjudication that would take about six months, mm-hmm. and then you would be placed in U non immigrant status. You do th- you're, it's given to you for four years, but after three you go ahead and file for residency, and then you file for naturalization five years later. Now because there is an annual statutory cap of ten thousand U visas. And there's now 280,000 pending. Your case is going to take 48 to 52 months just to be adjudicated. 
And that will then place you on a wait list in deferred action, which you are not allowed to use to travel. We made that, me and, me and, me and the friends made that memo happen for mm-hmm. an advanced parole uh, and humanitarian parole element of the wait list. But then the um, current administration came in and lit it on fire with everything else. Mm-hmm. So um, you're stuck on this wait list and for, at, for 28 years. Wow. And then you'll get your U issued and then you got to wait another three and then green card. But if you're abroad, you're stuck abroad for 28 years. If you're, 28 years? if you're a principal here. Yeah. I mean, like if you look at when people say get in line, I'm like, it's not a line, man. It's like a, I don't know, take like the anybody who like likes the Beatles and anybody who likes Lizzo and like put them together, those lines and then wrap them around the world a couple. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's ridiculous. Like for a while, I haven't looked at the visa bulletin in a while, but for a while, fourth preference Filipino category or the category for fourth preference which is um sibling petitions for filipinos was the current priority date was like 1983 wow so it's just like this big racist orwellian like graph of humans um and you know if you're if you're like a swiss investor the doors right open wide open to you so the way i always the way that i always explain immigration law is that it's like a mountain Mm-hmm. And some dip, and there are a lot of different paths to the top to lawful immigration status. So to like green card or let's just say green card. Um, you can if you're like a Swiss investor, you can come on in and do your investor visa. And it's going to be really it's going to go very well for you. If you are an indigenous Guatemalan refugee, you might die in custody and or get kidnapped or killed or get eaten by an alligator in a moat. Yeah, well, actually, speaking of wild animals, uh, I worked a lot with there's a, there was a huge diaspora of um, Haitians who walked from Brazil in 2018, and a lot of them along the way were eaten by because they had to go through the Darien Strait in Panama, which is like this oh super crazy jungle with all kinds of wild animals so there was literally like the way that they would notify people at home about like who died and who made the journey there were like whatsapp photos and groups of like people that have been eaten by jaguars in the forest oh my goodness like it i cannot and then when the women got to the nicaraguan border their vaginas were searched by military members with ak-47s there was another i forgot what border it was but they're along the journey and they would get stopped in Venezuela and then deported back a couple of countries. It was like one step forward, two steps back. And um, then they, there was another crossing where um, the men were in the river and then some people on the other side threw electrical cables into the river to like do a mass electrocution of the people that were trying to swim across. Mm -hmm. So it's just like a level of, I think this job more than anything has shown me just like the level of, it makes me think like, Whoever the hell created humans has like a really bizarre sense of humor. Yeah, like I've never the levels of cruelty, but also the levels of kindness are just like never cease to amaze me on a daily basis. So it's just really depressing right now because yeah. you're like a lot of the cases that um, would have absolutely been, been approved. They're like denying because you had let's say you had a DUI 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. 
You apply for the U visa. You disclose the DUI. Mm -hmm. You get the U visa. You spend three years in U visa status. You're working. You're going to school. You're doing all the good things. Then you go to apply for adjustment, and then they deny you because of the DUI that you already said you had 20 years ago. So those are the types of things that we're seeing. Well, you'll see things like you'll get a request for evidence for to prove that your client, who literally has a bullet lodged in their body, suffered substantial abuse. Oh my gosh. You'll have them forcing you, your clients to get psych evals to find out like why they have depression after they just applied because they got gang raped. So you're just like, I literally, I'm trying not to sound like Elle Woods right now, but like I literally can't. Yeah, I can't. On a, like, I, can't. I can't. I can't. So um, it's, it's just practicing immigration law feels like you are like in a washing machine full of knives and bourbon. And there's a blowtorch, yeah. and it's also rolling down a hill mm-hmm. into a Sharknado. Yeah, and then imagine that times a million times worse for the people who are actually going through it. Oh, God. Yeah. No, of course. No, I mean, I, I, I'm not disparaging anything you're doing, no. but I'm saying, like, it is so... I don't know how they do it. I do not know. Exactly. I do not know. They are literally... By the time folks have made the journey and you see them in Mexico and they still have like the Yelera detention, maybe deportation after it, there's like you look into their eyes and there's like a part that is just gone. So and then you, I think that as a function of racism, people will say, oh, well, they're like they can handle it. They're resilient. No, they're just like you and me. And it's I would say that they're far stronger than you and me to be honest and far stronger than most people I absolutely agree but I think that there is this sort of societal thing with black and brown people where they're like oh they're able to handle more trauma it's like no they're not no they're human beings yeah they're human beings and the fact that you're ignoring their trauma does not mean that they don't have it right so that was all the point I wanted to make for that I agree completely um I think resilience is often I think resilience 99% of the time is like complete garbage. Like mm-hmm. the, there was some Harvard study I remember where they were like, they spent like $35 million on resiliency training. Meanwhile, like all of their cafeteria workers were on strike because they were making like $10 an hour. Good, How about good. you just divert yeah. that yeah, money absolutely. so they can be more resilient mm-hmm. with money because yeah. capitalism. <laughs> with a living yeah, wage. Yeah, exactly. How revolutionary. Yeah. So, um, so yeah. So somehow back to you visas. Um, it's a, I love the work mm-hmm. right now. It's terrifying because there are plenty of cases that I would have filed in years prior that I would never, that I'm like, we'll just wait. Angela Davis will be president and then everything will be okay. And then we can go back to our normal lives. Um, but, uh, it's a very high trauma population and it's, it's, a it's basically it's administrative. So it's like transactional in nature. So you're not actually like, your client is not going to be testifying for the you. It has to all be done on paper. So it has to make you be – you really have to get your legal writing skills up. Absolutely. And also really – you have to be really good at taking client declarations, mm-hmm. which can be an extremely traumatic experience for the client and the attorney mm-hmm. if not done correctly. Mm-hmm. And even if done correctly, it's going to – you know, it chips a little piece away at you. Absolutely. Any most helping professions are like that. And um, we go into helping professions because we're motivated to we have a calling to do it. We like you have seen so much pain and trauma that, well, I can't say like you, but for me, my time on earth would be wasted if I wasn't helping to address other people's pain and trauma. That's how I feel. What's the other point of life? That's literally how I feel also. Yeah. 
so I think it's important to address self-care also. And that so that's what I'm getting at. People who take care of others often do a terrible job of mm-hmm. taking care of themselves. Mm-hmm. But I don't think that we can take care of others unless we're taking yeah. care of ourselves. So what do you do for self-care? What do other people in your organization do for self-care? So that's a complicated question. I know. First of all, I want the concept of self-care is sometimes also like extremely like Instagram-y right. fake. Yes. So like I'm not talking about like go get a mani-pedi and your PTSD will go away. No, we're not influencers. No, no. <laughs> no definitely not. I don't even know. I would, I would venture to say you are pretty influential but <laughs> not maybe not Instagram. like maybe not like an influencer <laughs> yeah that word is scary let's see what do we do we have a lot of wellness events at our organization so our Tijuana staff last week I was like I was like crying when I saw the pictures they were um my staff they were in like reclining chairs getting acupuncture oh. with a cellist wow yeah you have to like beat wellness into your employees in this environment i can imagine we have a butter churn at the office we make butter you can take the girl out of wisconsin but you can't take wisconsin out of the girl and everybody gets do you know what zubas are they're like the official yes 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 only in the midwest are people gonna know i know that and i was born in the 80s i know oh okay girl (laughs) um so everybody has um they pick their own zubas Okay. So, and we have an office that is a house, and you can bring puppies to the office. And we all have stuffed animals. So it's like that's if if and and we're very flexible about remote work. Me and my supervisory attorney are always checking in on the staff. They know that we're extremely accessible. They know that we understand trauma like crazy. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's funny. Trauma like crazy. Um, and they, they, I don't know, it, it's very difficult to be a supervisor right now because Absolutely. these kids are missing, obviously DACA didn't go nearly far enough, but they missed DACA. They mm-hmm. missed prosecutorial discretion. They Now that we're just like, hey, welcome to Al Otro Lado. Please, you're going to have to go to hell tomorrow. Mm-hmm. It'll be really terrible. <laughs> there will be ankle bracelets and institutional racism. Um, so it's just really difficult because you're really trying to like manage that for them. And then it, it it's a lot more stress on you because there are some supervisors that just think that all you're there to do is supervise substantive work. And that's yeah. not. You're there for a lot more than that. And so um, there's an enormously high level of burnout mm-hmm. in this type of job. So you just have to take like the only time I really like yell at my employees is when they're like not using their vacation days. And so I don't like, yell. I'm not an abusive boss, but like they need to take, cause they're they're Everybody who works for me would, we're all nuts. And we'd like do this for free 90 hours a day if we could, Absolutely. but that is completely unsustainable. Totally not good as far as labor practices or like the long-term mental health of your employees. Um, I also have been facilitating a group. Well, no, I don't facilitate it because I'm not a mental health professional, but me and a licensed marriage and family therapist um, formed a uh, a group in, in like 2000 and I don't know, it was maybe five, six years ago, um, specifically for immigration advocates that are suffering vicarious trauma. Mm-hmm. So um, and we're trying to duplicate that on a national level. Um, because after three years of this, I mean, it was never easy to be an immigration attorney, but after three years of this administration, people are literally dropping like flies. Attorneys are committing suicide. People are sliding into like major substance abuse issues. People are suicidal. They're closing their practices. Um, so it's just really, I can't like, it's, it's, it's for me, it's more important than substantive training. 
Yeah, absolutely. And at the beginning. I agree. So the reason that you were invited to the university today, um, after you're done recording this, you're going to go down to our ceremonial courtroom and give a nice fancy talk. Um, The reason that you were invited was because you experienced a very traumatizing experience yourself. Yeah. So um, the Trump administration has gone to really unbelievable lengths to silence um, and try to try to make the, the work of people or the, the type of work that I do for me and my coworkers completely impossible. So um, while we and the layers of irony of this, I just like cannot one of my good friends who's a writer said that if I writ, if I wrote this out as a manuscript, a potential editor would throw it in the trash and light it on fire because it's too perfectly horrible. Right. And I was like, you just validated so many things. Yeah. So right in the middle of when we're working on family separation, because my organization also has like a large litigation um, program, uh, we're representing most of the separated families. In the middle of us working on the separated families cases, Uh, where my staff was in, like, the far-flung regions of Guatemala, working with, like, um, parents to try to get them back when they're, like, non-Spanish speakers and their kids are, like, locked in some group home in Georgia. I can't even talk about that without, like, my head flying off. So while we were working on separated families, I was traveling to Guadalajara with my best friend, my husband, and my daughter, to be for a really big family reunification because my best friend has had just become able to travel and his um, sibling had been deported like 10 years before so this was like epic family reunion right so we get off of the plane and everyone's passports are cool then they get to mine they scan it they say there's an alert and instantly my heart sank because my coworker, well my co we have two other directors at al otro lado Nicole Ramos, who heads our border rights project, she had gotten her sentry revoked with no, which is like global entry, mm-hmm. um, with absolutely no explanation, which turned her, you know, her job, if you're representing people in detained court in San Diego, absolutely. instead of like 30 minutes to cross, it might be like five hours. Yeah. Um, then they detained and deported my other co-director, litigation director, Erika Pinero. She was detained at the border, sent back. Um, was eventually able to get back to Mexico. I was detained. um, It was January 30th. Um, They interrogated me for about an hour and a half about languages I spoke, how much money I had with me, weapons training, terrorist ties, um, languages I spoke. I don't know if I said that already. And then they were really focused on what criminal investigation did I have against me. What side of the border was this? Mexico. On? Okay. So the United States can't really do much to me because I am a U.S. citizen. However, they can have any other country they want doing the bidding for them, especially countries whose economy depends on the U.S. Sure. So like I didn't like. Yeah. So so Mexico is like the enforcer. Right. So I was detained by Mexican immigration officials and they so they did like the hour and a half of like, you know, are you a terrorist? And you have to be hiding something. There has to be a criminal investigation. I'm like, serious? I wasn't even joking. I'm like, I have one outstanding parking ticket with mm-hmm. the city of Los Angeles. I don't think that's what this is about. Mm-hmm. And so finally, I'm just like, they're like, we have to check with Mexico City to see if they'll release the alert. Da, 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 da. And it was just a sort of like purgatory thing with my kid, my husband and my best friend on the other side of like the hall away from me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had my phone, thank God. So I was able to text them and be like, I think I'm going to be not be able to go back. I think I'm going to get deported. Blah, blah, blah. 
And all of this happens. And then, and we got in at midnight. So this is all happening at like one, two, three, four, five in the morning. So then they kept every two hours they came in. Well, sorry, back up a little bit. So I told my daughter, I, my, it looks like mommy is going to have, cause they brought them back in. Cause I had all the luggage. I was like, it looks like mommy's not going to be able to go. I have an alert. She starts just like screaming. How old was she? Seven. Wow. I, there's no way to talk about this. I'm crying. so sorry. No, it's okay. I want people to know what happened. Cause yeah. this is not okay. So they, um, I looked at the two women who there was two female officials and I looked at them and I said, um, are you going to separate? Can she stay with me? And they looked at each other and were like, okay. And I was like, are you going to take me to a detention center? And they're like, no, cause we're going to send you back tomorrow. So it's okay. And then I looked at them and I'm thinking about all the separated families that we're working with. And I said, are you going to separate me from my child? And they said no, with almost a look that was like, that's what you guys are doing. (laughs) So she stayed with me, and it was the hardest, most messed up decision I've ever had to make as a parent, but I am totally confident in retrospect it was absolutely the right thing to do. And my husband, who is a really wonderful nurse and excellent father, was like, she is going to lose her mind if she can't be with you. So I chose to be detained with my child. Mm They came in. We were in a really cold room. I was sleeping on the floor, trying to sleep. I was laying on the floor. Um, and they came in every two hours and said, we're going to bring you food and water. But they didn't. So finally, like the fourth time, I'm just like, just stop coming. I don't know why you're doing this to us. And I have a really um, serious disease called the Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. It's a hypermobility disorder that makes me have, like, constant nausea, constant headaches, joint dislocations, um, crashes in blood pressure, and two of my organs have exploded, uh, small intestine and placenta. So it's, like, a very – I have to take a lot of medication for it. Mm -hmm. And so I was, like, I need water. Like, I need water. And then I would just get yelled at when I peek my head out by men with AK-47s and camo being like, get back in. So I finally like befriended the nice lady that was like taking out the trash from the office. I was like, can you please get me a glass of water? Um, and and then they also were playing weird psyops things with us because they said that we would be on an on a flight that was leaving at like seven or something. And so I'm just I just remember hovering over my child who was so exhausted that she was able to sleep with this like thin little scarf spread over her and in this like freezing cold room. And I just remember being like, please sleep. Please don't wake up. Please don't wake up. Please don't wake up. Because I can't like having I've talked to a ton of clients who've been detained with their children and they're like, it's, you know, it's messed up for a billion different reasons. But what struck me was that you have absolutely no control. And when you're the parent, you're the protector. But when you're detained with your kid... I can't soothe her. I can't say everything's going to be okay because I don't know what the hell's going on. And so finally, so they come in. The flight was supposed to be at like 7. They come at like 6.50. And then they say, you know what? The flight's not leaving till 10.30. So it was just this like, I'm at the point where I was, I'd been like dry heaving like on the like on the floor. I got like a whole new like hip injury from like, I don't know. It was, I don't ever want to go through that again. Goodness. No one deserves to go through that. And that's nothing, absolutely nothing on earth compared to what my clients have gone through. It doesn't minimize your pain, though, honestly. Right. I know. There is the problem of of falling into the thing where you're like, well, I didn't get, like, you know, beat with a spike bat this morning, so I'm doing great. But, like, 
you know, I got deported to a Tempur-Pedic bed. Like it, it, it sent me into mast cell activation mm-hmm. syndrome, which is this like crazy allergic response. So I basically was like knocked out with like the flu for 10 days after, not to mention the PTSD. But like I didn't have to. I'm not facing down a like a marero that I owe six grand to right. for the. You know what I'm saying? Of like course. it's just. You know, it's obviously different we, for we have privileges and we recognize uh, yeah, that. I but am yeah. People with privilege also experience pain yes, and trauma. Yes, 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 yes. Uh, Though the cardigan of white privilege does cushion quite a bit. Yeah. You know, and above everything else, like they did this to my kid. Yeah. They did this to my seven year old. So we have litigation going in both countries. I am a we suit I have wonderful attorneys at the ACLU who are representing me in a case entitled Phillips v. CBP, mm-hmm. which I feel like is also the caption of my life. Yeah, absolutely. And then we have uh, litigation going in Mexico as well, which will hopefully result in a decision saying that you cannot honor as a uh, the Mexican government cannot honor a clearly retaliatory travel alert. Mm-hmm. So it's just this whole, it's given me this insight that I didn't necessarily want to have. Absolutely. But also the thing that I am incredibly thankful for, the only, you know, trying to make lemonade, is that I now have an even deeper bond than I did before with my friends who've been deported. And I have a lot of extremely close friends, like, like definitely family level friends yeah. who've been deported. And they have by far and away been my, like, we'll have entire like WhatsApp conversations about how messed up it feels to get deported and how um, you feel alienated. And then this weird sort of psychological thing where I'm just like, it's like Mexico is like my ex. And I'm like, wasn't I good to you? Yeah. Like, didn't it's a really, it's really weird. It's a very dark version it, of. Of art imitating life, yeah, imitating yes. art, you know, yeah, and then like the fact that I'm an asylum attorney and I could, qu- I'd take my case if I were like a Canadian immigration lawyer. Yeah. The fact that I have spent a large portion of my life highlighting Amnesty International reports, and then I see the terrified text that I sent to an Amnesty International employee in block quotes in a report about U.S. repression of human rights advocates. I, yeah, I, the face you made, yeah, I almost threw up when I saw I that. Mean, that is, yeah. It literally, like, I think the chapter is titled I Am So Scared because that was the first sentence. It was just, like, there's been a lot of throwing up. (laughs) I mean, re-traumatization, and I did research and wrote a paper about it, but that's it right there. Yeah, and in the most gentle way possible. Mm -hmm. That was amnesty. I mean, they, like, helped me get out. Yeah. But I just feel like I live in, like, it's, like, temporary North Korea. Like, I don't even know. I definitely don't live in a democracy. Yeah. We don't. I know. We don't. I know we don't. No, we definitely don't. We and for don't. yeah. So anyway. Good times <sighs> in Guadalajara. My bestie did make me um make a shirt a couple of days later that I designed that said I went to Guadalajara and all I got was detained, detained. for nine hours. <laughs> <laughs> nine of the longest. It was actually ten, but okay, yeah, exactly. Oh my goodness! What year was that, by the way? This year. Oh, great! Yeah, yeah. So last year I got diagnosed with like the degenerative, debilitating illness, and then it was deportation this year. Oh my goodness! So we'll see what next year has. And here, law students are forcing you to relive your trauma on a podcast. It's fine. I have a. Oh, please! You're adorable, and (laughs) the they. I have. I have a way to preface because people have extraordinarily bizarre reactions to me telling the story. Yeah. One woman. Um, public defender in Los Angeles. I kind of hope she's listening. She grabbed my arm so hard that she almost dislocated my shoulder while she's pulling me towards her um, saying, I need to know more about what happened. Oh, my what? God. And I'm like, I'm, you're like going to pull my arm off. And it's the one yeah. that I write with. Uh. So if you could just go away forever 
that and maybe seek therapy that would be great yeah people don't handle they laugh yeah like they're like you and then there's this whole racial thing where they're like you got deported i'm like yeah white people get deported white people should get deported a lot more (laughs) like half of the white half of the americans living in mexico are undocumented or more so anyway, so there's that whole thing too, where mm-hmm. where other where it, it's always inevitably another white person that's like you. Got, I'm like, yes, you know, very occasionally we're also like treated horribly by law enforcement. I know trauma yeah. is like people who experience trauma handle it in different ways, mm-hmm. obviously, and then people who are hearing about trauma handle oh, it God. in a lot of different well, ways. Well, it's also. like the person that laughs maniacally at a funeral because yeah. it's just and like that's okay. Mm-hmm. That I can handle because it's more of like a reflex. Sure. And then they're like, oh, God, sorry. But the the like inc- incredulity from some privileged like white person yeah. being like, oh, my God, you mean like I could go somewhere and like somebody could like treat me badly? Yeah. And it's not like locked up abroad. It's sort of like locked up abroad. But instead of like taping like bricks of drugs to me, I'm just taping like office supplies. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> like I swallowed a bunch of binder clips or something. Absolutely. Um, yeah, it's just um, – it's still very fresh in, you know, in my mind and my brain, and I'm still processing it. My my kid came out of it essentially unscathed mm-hmm. um, because when we – I think also it helped that my co-director, Erica, went – like literally went, I don't know, nuclear on um, Twitter, and mm-hmm. like 60 people were waiting for me at the international terminal. Mm-hmm. And when I got off of the – when we finally cleared Border Patrol and walked up – that because that was the terrifying part too it's like I got deported and then every time I come back to the country I have to literally face the people who are killing my clients Mm -hmm. who I'm suing Mm -hmm. (laughs) so it's like very I'm not I can't breathe until I've like cleared CBP so I come out and then everybody was there and my kid looks at me and she goes mama I didn't know there were going to be so many lawyers and that was the thing that was like healing to her Mm -hmm. was like like you know 60 lawyers like you can't do that to her mommy and then immediately like I got out of the plane I don't remember anything except I was wearing this hideous scarf and I was like ugly crying and then I just remember looking at the LA Times photographer and was like if you take a picture of my kid I'll kill you and he's like understood and then two of my really close friends who used to be my interns took my kid and whisked her off to get ice cream Mm -hmm. so I'm just like crying into cameras and like yelling in English and Spanish and I look over my kids like eating an ice cream sundae and I'm like where did that come from but yeah. also I I'm love so humanity happy. Yeah, I'm, so happy <laughs> I'm looking at all these cream. people and I'm like don't you have to be in court like oh my god yeah. so the solidarity is what is getting us through all of this absolutely all of this so I think that you know and we're developing these really rapid response systems that I think that hopefully for the benefit of all of humanity we do not have a certain person reelected but if we do we're all working on establishing these like these systems for justice that will be able to weather storms mm-hmm. so if he doesn't get reelected then we're going to really be ready to go absolutely um but yeah the every all of our colleagues have gotten closer and closer as a result of this because uh, you know it's it's frankly hard to have relationships with people that don't already understand this world because mm-hmm. then you have to spend so much time traumatizing yourself by educating them yeah. oh. they're like wait there are kids in cages i'm like i yeah, can't talk to you I dude like no. i'm sorry you just go here i'm gonna send you some articles and then like call me later what can people do 
I know that is help. such a I know that's <laughs> a ridiculous question. No, it's not. It's like, not at all. I would say that there if you are there are a bunch of different ways to help. You could um, if you want to volunteer with us and you're fluent in Spanish or you're not fluent in Spanish. Mm-hmm. We still need you. Deportee program needs people who are fluent in English because mm-hmm. a lot of them like barely speak Spanish at all. We need help on the ground. We need help remotely. We need law student volunteers. We need um, campaigns. Just as an example, one of the most meaningful, incredible changes to our immigration system would be to make immigration courts independent Article Three federal courts. Absolutely. It would be a due process day and night situation um, where you don't have immigration judges at the mercy of whatever like mildly sociopathic attorney general wants to just be like I'm the Supreme Court I'm going to certify this decision so I think that that would like organize a campaign to educate people about that if you make that happen oh my lord Mm -hmm. learn all you can about MPP about the remain in Mexico program it's horrible um, read about the illegal lists that are kept um, in all of the cities south of the border that are uh, like there are we one of our first lawsuit was to break the list mm-hmm. and basically have it acknowledged that the metering in air quotes policy that's what CBP uses to refer to this illegal list which has got about 15,000 people on it in Tijuana and then across the southern border probably another 30,000 more who have to get a get in line and written in like written in a notebook that's maintained sort of by like some of the head like refugees and also Mexican immigration and then all it's a just just google asylum list Tijuana and you'll be like oh my god so there are like 45,000 people probably in Tijuana between folks that have been sent back for the remain in Mexico program while their court dates are happening and that in and of itself is such a due process disaster. Mm-hmm. Um, there, people have to like pack up from the shelter to go to their hearings. They, d- you can't meet with your client in the U.S. So you got to find a lawyer that's willing to travel to Tijuana, wow. or if you're on the Texas border, which is w- even more dangerous. If you're in like Matamoros, those attorneys only go within like a hundred feet of the border because wow. beyond that, it's like shootout season. Like yeah. it's, it's a, I think it's level five for safety threat for the state mm-hmm. department. So the state department is saying, stay away from these places, but also this is where we're going to have clients wait. Mm-hmm. And then apparently I haven't been to an MPP hearing yet, but apparently like these folks, they don't have anywhere to bathe. Yeah. They don't have more than like one change of clothes. Apparently it's just like the smell is like overwhelming mm-hmm. Um, like there's no dignity at all ever afforded to this population and it makes me just like rabid Um, but the other thing is that the audio equipment doesn't work because there are so many people crying in the courtroom that it like shuts it like distracts the mind I know so like that for me it's like you can't even run court and then the judges will be like get a babysitter and you're like "Uh, I have like 96 like 96 follow-up questions asked you how the hell that's going to be possible I'm gonna get an international like a like just go away yeah like I haven't eaten I haven't eaten for three days and got raped yesterday like let me find a nanny are you serious I have no words right truly none so that's what's going on yeah but yeah people can get mad 
people, I think it's really important for people to keep reminding each other this is not normal. Yeah. This is not normal. There are babies in cages. There are kids mm-hmm. drowning in the river. Um, you have like hundreds of thousands of people that are being, you know, held back at the northern border. The southern border makes the northern border look good in comparison. Mm-hmm. There was video recently about there's a Centro Mesoamericana in Chiapas, and there was a Haitian woman that said that she was like yelling underneath the fence pleading for help they were locked in saying me and my baby haven't had any any food or water for four days the baby was 11 months old so like oh it, and then you've got warehouses and in, in in tamaulipas or chihuahua i forgot where it was but there was a convert like a warehouse that they used to house people and people were locked in and it caught caught on fire so it's just like i don't know i don't know what to say like how shame on us Shame as a world and a society for letting people absolutely like you're you have a gold toilet mm-hmm. not you but uh, like people, i sure as hell don't no. have a gold to- i think but we like, all know someone who yes, has a gold toilet yes if you have though. a gold toilet you have too much money yeah and you need to share it cuz yeah. people are dying and mm-hmm. like we'll all be dead in 80 years and like what do we have to show for it yeah that you got like four more gold toilets like give me a break yeah your absolutely. priorities are terrible absolutely anyway well, Nora, I want to talk to you for like five million more hours, Aww. and we have a lot to talk about. We you do have so much experience, truly. I mean, it's unbelievable. If I can give like a thirty second, yes, absolutely. All right, kids, don't take any smack. All right, you're young and you're going into the workplace, and you're extremely vulnerable to abuse by employers. And this is in the corporate and the nonprofit sector particularly a nonprofit which has this like martyr thing where it's like well I worked 90 hours yesterday and I haven't showered in three months so clearly you don't care about justice like that needs to go away Mm -hmm. Um, and I think a lot of people are willing to put up with a lot of things including sexual harassment which I've definitely uh, experienced in a number of job positions and didn't say anything when I was younger because I was worried about, oh, God, I need a letter of recommendation. This is going to tank everything. I'm going to have to come out against this person who's been working here for 30 years, blah, 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 blah. I just I want to I would love to talk to students and let them know that they should stand up. They can stand up. I will back them up. Even if I don't know you, I will back you up. And also like one final thing, like I have met so many terrible lawyers in extremely expensive suits Mm -hmm. and I've met so many brilliant lawyers in sweatpants. So that's all I got for now. Yeah, that's amazing. I really appreciate you. Everything that you're doing, you're exactly the kind of lawyer and person I want to be. So you might want to rethink that, but thank (laughs) you. (laughs) I deeply admire you. Thank you so Um, much. Thanks, Nora Phillips. And we look forward to hearing more from you. You will. That's all from us here at The Podbegin. Thanks again for joining us today. Our team wants to hear from you. If there's a topic you want the show to cover, an event you'd like us to address, or just something you're passionate about, please email us at thepodvocate at gmail.com. Our producer is Jim Allruns. Our senior editor is Radhika Sutherland. Our associate editors are Haley Burridge and Jake Kupferman. And our editor-in-chief is Matt Doran. Special thanks to Dean Michael Kaufman providing the resources and support to make this show possible. And thanks to our predecessor, Dialogue DeNovo, for launching a podcast on our campus. From Loyola University Chicago School of Law, this has been The Podcast.